0: Um, I admit I was excited for this day to be here and doing what I'm going to be doing regularly, standing before you and preaching the Word of God and digging into a book of the Bible. The book of the Bible we're going to be digging into is a book called Colossians because it was written to Christians in Colossae. And uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles and open them to Colossians Um, I'm going to be reading uh, for a reading at the beginning from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which if you use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, is on page 834. So you can turn to page 834 if you're using the pew Bible. And because we believe when we read the Bible, we're hearing God's voice, just as a a sign of respect for God, we're going to stand and hear God speak to us. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, I know many here have taken this last week and read through the book of Colossians. As we begin this series, we are uh, acknowledging before you um, that we want to hear what you have to say. We want to understand what you have said. We want to hear your voice, and we want to submit to it. We we don't want to just be people who look at the Word, see what it says, and then go away and forget about it. We want to be doers. We can't do it apart from your Spirit, so we ask that you would help us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, Some of you know that the house we bought here in Georgetown required some renovations. And so uh, early on in the process, uh, I sent this note to our contractor. I'm going to read it to you. It says, uh, Sean, thanks for getting me that estimate. It's great help. Here's a sketch with information on what I'd like to have done. Depending on the estimate, I may not be able to do everything I want. I'll be getting estimates from one or two other contractors. If your price is competitive, I'll go with you because you've been so prompt and professional. Thanks, James. Well, Sean knew that uh, I was a pastor. And so in order to make sure that uh, he had gotten his understanding of the, the note I sent correct, he brought it to another evangelical pastor and said, Could you help me understand this note? And the pastor read over it and he said, Right smack dab in the middle of this important note is an important sentence. It says, I may not be able to do everything I want. That line is a statement about how big God is and how small we are. We need to be people who understand that we may not be able to do everything that we want. There's the I want. And there's the God wants. What James is saying to you, Sean, is that you need to be somebody who realizes what's important is what God wants. Not what I want. And until we realize that fact, we're lost. Well, you guys figured out the note is real. But Sean obviously didn't take it to a pastor. But you get the point. The pastor took that note... And he said some very nice things. Some things that are true. But that had nothing to do with the note that I wrote. He gave Sean no help at all in understanding what I was trying to say to Sean in writing that note. Even though he said a bunch of helpful things. And probably things that would be nice for Sean or anyone else to hear. And sadly, too often, pastors today... Do the exact same thing with the Bible. So they'll read a letter, you know, this letter that we're going to be digging into—Colossians, this is a letter from Paul to the church at Colossae—and they'll find a sentence or two, or a verse or two, and pluck it out of context and pontificate about it. They'll often say things that are true, and health, helpful, and worthwhile but because they're not taking what God has said and representing it well, they are misrepresenting God. And I want to say, I stand in fear of misrepresenting God. That's one thing I hope that I never do when I stand up. And so it's my practice to preach through whole books of the Bible. Because I want you to understand what that letter or what that book is doing, not just with a verse that I pulled out that I thought would be helpful for some topic that I'm speaking on. doesn't mean I'll never do anything else, but that's my practice. And when I do that, one of the things I will always do, or at least I plan on always doing, is start and end with a message on the whole book. That way, when we're on any passage within the book, you have a sense for what the whole book is doing. And so that's what this sermon is today, and that's why it's what we're doing today. We're going to be in Colossians here for a few months. I think I'm planning 12 talks from Colossians, so this is the first of 12. If you want to count, you can, and you'll know when we're nearing the end. But when you're trying to get a sense for what the letter, especially in, 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 um, well, in any book of the Bible, but especially in a letter one of the best things you can do is go through the letter and find out everything you can about the people to whom it was written. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to learn what we can about the Colossians, these Christians in Colossae. So, in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul is telling them who he's writing to, and he says, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. Now, that might not Mean much to us, but if you go and read all of Paul's other uh, salutations or greetings, how he says, you know, to so and so, he never with anybody else calls them holy and faithful. Those extra adjectives give us an indication that these Christians are are living the right way. And then in verses three and f- three through five, look at this in chapter one. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now listen, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. He says, I'm thanking God because of your faith, your love, and your hope. Now maybe you've been in the church and you've heard the the, the the term faith, hope, and love, or maybe you haven't been in the church for very long, but you've been in a Christian's home and you saw this thing hanging on their wall that said faith, hope, and love. That's because in 1 Corinthians chapter thirteen, Paul says, "Look, there's all these different things you can excel at as Christians. There's all these things that are important, but you know what? want to know the three greatest, the three things that remain, that endure. They are faith, hope." And love, and then he says, and the greatest of these is love. So when Paul is measuring someone's maturity and how they're doing spiritually, he's going to say, look, these three things are pretty important, right? And he just, at the outset of Colossians, said, I thank God for you, for your faith, your love, and your hope. You're doing pretty well, eh? I'm learning Canadian. So then uh, look down um, just a little bit further at verse 6. He says that um, he's talking about the gospel. He says it's bearing fruit and growing. And then he says, just as it has been doing among you since the day you've heard of it and understood God's grace and all its truth. So he says, look, not only do you have faith, hope, and love, but the gospel itself is at work within you and it's bearing fruit within you. Then look a little bit further at chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, He says, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. And then he says, And I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So they're firm in their faith in Christ. And then look at chapter 3, verse 7. He's talking about the ways uh, we shouldn't be living. He says, Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Kind of an ugly list, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry. But then he says, um, he says, the wrath of God is coming because of these. And then he says in verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. In other words, these things, he's, he's standing in a church like this and he just lists these things that everyone would kind of turn up their nose on and he says, wait, that's all of us. That's the life we used to live. And he says, but you've been transformed. There's been a change. These things that held a grip on you don't hold a grip on you anymore. This isn't the gospel that people just believed. Oh yeah, I believe the gospel. And they came forward and knelt down and prayed a prayer and then went on living their life these colossians took their faith so seriously they were so firm in their faith that it was transforming them from people who were enslaved to sexual sin to people who are walking in the ways of Christ so this is a pretty group good group of believers we might say they are healthy they are mature but when I say they're mature, I don't want you to get confused and think that it means that they've been Christian for cent- Christians for centuries, that they were born Christian and were going to die Christian and they've been Christian for 70 years. You see, Paul, who made several missionary journeys, he was on his third missionary journey and he went to a town called Ephesus, which was about 120 miles west of, um, or let's see, it would be east of Colossae. And he spent three years in in, in Ephesus teaching people the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. Now there happened to have been a Colossian named Epaphras who came to Ephesus and he heard Paul preaching and he believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and he had his life transformed by it. And he said, you know what I need to do? I need to go back to Colossae and I need to tell people about it. And you can tell that because right in chapter 1 and verse 6 it says, or verse 7, He's talking about understanding the grace of God and all its truth. He said, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And then he says, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, you can tell that Epaphras is still with Paul while Paul's in prison. So what happens is as Paul completes his third missionary journey, he eventually ends up in jail. And Epaphras, who's been ministering amongst the Colossians, comes and brings a report to Paul and says, look, this church that I just started, they're doing great. They're excelling. They're doing wonderful. And so Paul says, that's wonderful. Let's pray together for them. And he writes a note to them. What that means, if you put all the timeline together, is that this church had been around for less than a decade. Just for a second, everyone who's been a Christian here for longer than 10 years, put your hand up in the air. you've been a Christian. All right, all those people aren't in the church, okay? They're a mature, vibrant group of Christians, but it's not because they've been Christians for so long. It's a new church. It's this vibrant church plant that's just started. People who have just given their lives to Christ. So when you hear mature, healthy Christians, don't think, well, that's something I'll never be until I'm 60. No, it means engaged, loving the gospel, being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who this letter was written to. But Paul, um, at at the heart of his letter, to this mature group of Christians, is a stern warning. So look with me at this warning. He says in chapter 1, verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, they are at risk of being moved away from their hope in the gospel. Or if you look at chapter 2 and verse 4, they are at risk of being deceived by fine-sounding arguments. Or if you look just a few verses ahead at chapter 2 and verse 8, you see they're at risk of being taken captive. By hollow and deceptive teaching. Or if you look at chapter 2 and verse 16, they're at risk of being judged for not living up to snuff of certain people. And in chapter 2, verse 18, he even says they're at risk of being disqualified from the prize. So, do you catch that? A mature, healthy church is at risk, Paul says, of being moved, deceived, disqualified. There is a pitfall to which these healthy, mature Colossian believers are particularly susceptible to falling into. And for us who love Jesus... Who have been transformed by his gospel. Who are willing to go into our schools or into our workplace and be mocked and laughed at because of our stand for Christ. There is a pitfall to which we are susceptible to falling into. So let's dig further into Colossians and try and so we know who they are. We know what they're at risk of falling into or we know they're at risk. Let's see what it is that poses the risk to them. Chapter 2, verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. So what's going to deceive them are are arguments that actually sound fine to them. They they make good sense to them. They're they're intuitive, right? Or chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now that word philosophy there doesn't necessarily mean like studying the ancient Greek philosophers. It just means a coherent, cohesive uh, um, organization of thought. So it's cohesive. It makes sense. There's not a bunch of holes in it is what he's saying. Now saying it's deceptive. But as as a system, it has no holes in it. And then he says, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of Of the world. Rather than on Christ. The basic principles of the world. What he's saying in that. Is that there's this kind of. Basic way the world functions and thinks. These things that we all get. Intuitively within the culture that we're in. These basic principles. And he says. This teaching that you're susceptible to. As somebody part of your world. Your culture. It makes intuitive sense. It's built on the very basic. Intuitive stuff of this world. You can see why it would. Hold a little sway. It sounds fine. It's, it's a, a cohesive system of thought. It sits well with my intuition. And look at verses two sixteen through, chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes on into great detail about what he's seen, his visions, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with the idle notions. Do you hear the spiritual tone to it? They worship angels. They tap into the rich Jewish history with sabbaths and festivals and new moons. They seem very religious or pious because they say there's certain foods we're not going to eat. Uh, <clears throat> Maybe most Christians eat these things, but we understand the value of our body or we understand that we can achieve new heights if we just don't do this or do this in our diet. It's spiritual, so it's intuitive, it's cohesive, it makes sense, but it's spiritual. And it highlights personal spiritual experience. So you see that in two eighteen. Such a person goes on into great detail about his own visions. His unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions, so he's he's carried away in these visions and, and religious experiences. It's interesting that in chapter 3, when Paul talks about the marks of Christianity, there are things like love, forgiving others, bearing with one another. All these things that relate to others. But this spiritual teaching that they're susceptible to is actually inward-focused. You know, come into the room and turn all the lights out and it's just you and God and your own spiritual experience instead of keep the lights up and know that we're worshiping together as a community. So, there's this teaching that comes along. It's cohesive, intuitive. It's spiritual. It's religious. It's built on certain verses of scripture that talk about new moons, festivals, angels, all those things, of scriptural language, right? But, Again, in chapter 2, verse 8, which is so indicting, it says, but it depends on human tradition rather than on Christ. At the end of the day, these things are rooted in something some human came up with instead of the rich and full teachings of Christ. Now, make no mistake about it. They might prop it up with a verse ripped out of context like the devil did with Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's a man's idea and not God's. Now, I want to pause right here and just ask you a question. How do you grow spiritually? How do you grow spiritually? Hopefully, uh, if you've been in the church for very long, you would say things like, read the Bible. Pray. Love Jesus. Go to church. So you do these things. And then you do them again. Rinse, lather, or lather, rinse, repeat. Get the order right. But you reach a point, maybe, when you feel like you've plateaued spiritually. The spiritual highs you experienced when you first walked with Christ or at certain high points of your Christian journey you don't feel right now. You've stalled out in your faith. There's a woman named Sarah Young who uh, she came to Christ as an adult and then she studied theology at a good, solid, conservative seminary. She met her husband Steve there They decided to be missionaries. They went and were missionaries in Japan, planting churches in Japan. And her name is Sarah. She writes these words. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. So, you read your Bible, you pray, you go, to G- or you go to church, but I yearn for something more. Can you relate to that? You're feeling like that, and in walks this teaching that promises new heights of spiritual experience, that have been closed off to you prior to this. And it taps into the rich Jewish traditions of the Old Testament and it pulls, pulls from the things of this world that already seem intuitive to you and plays to this, the spirit of the age, by saying it's about puffing you up in, in these new heights for you. Most likely, it calls itself Christian. Most likely, it invokes the name of Jesus. Most likely, the book advocating it can be purchased at a Christian bookstore. Can you see why it would be something we might fall into? Well, what does Paul have to say about this situation? So we've seen what the Colossians were dealing with. Maybe we've started to see some of the ways we might relate to what the Colossians were dealing with. What they were at risk of. And so what does Paul say to them? We read it at the outset, 2, 6, and 7. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord... Continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. These two verses form the hinge between the two sections of Colossians. Up until this point in Colossians, Paul has been talking about how great Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for us. And then he says, as you've received this Jesus, continue in him. And then from this point on, if you like to make structure in your Bible and divide it out, this is where it is, okay? That's what I'm doing. From this point on, what he talks about is how do we walk in in jesus what does it mean to live in jesus so from 2 8 on that's what he'll be talking about so it's these two verses come right at the hinge and he's saying look you built your structure you went down into the ground you built your structure and now you're starting to feel a little bit wobbling or you might be at risk of a little bit of wobbling and what's the solution is the solution to make your structure broader and to delve deep into other fields no it's not to go broader It's to to go deeper in the very gospel that you now understand. You dig a little hole in the ground because you see some gold in there. You go through all the dirt and rocks and you've pulled out all the gold pieces and there's excitement because you found gold. But then your little hole is empty and you've got a few handfuls of gold and you say, I want some more gold. Should I dig over there for it? Should I dig over there for it? So Paul says in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He's talking about Christ and it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I meant to pick it up at verse 2. So that you, um, He says, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. So they may have the fullness. Full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the riches. All the treasures, he says. Don't go digging over there in a new hole. You've started to find gold. Dig deeper into this vein. You won't plumb the depths of the gold that are sitting in the very hole you're in right now. Christ is all. Now if you've been tracking with me up to this point, the question that should be in your mind or maybe in your mind is this. All right, James, I've believed the gospel. I embraced Jesus. I understood I was a sinner. And I understood Jesus died for me in my place so that I can escape hell. I get that, and yet I still feel this void, this vacuum, this desire for something more. Sarah Young understood that, and she had that desire. She yearned for more. I want you to hear me. I think that what could be in play is that for many of us, our understanding of the gospel is flat. It's one dimensional. There's so much more to the gospel than that simple set of truths, as true as they are. I have on my desk a picture of Karen from our honeymoon. She's standing on the shores of Lake Michigan. It's my favorite picture of her. I love to look at the picture when I'm working or, you know, just at various times. But it's nothing like being with her in person. The other week I saw a video, this cool new video they made with a a little flying helicopter, a little remote controlled helicopter of the Niagara Falls. It's breathtaking, it's beautiful. But it's nothing compared to feeling the thunder and breathing the mist of actual Niagara. I was talking with Bob Meisner. He's a, uh, he loves reading history. You read these statistics of how many lives were lost in the Second World War. It's horrible. But it's nothing like having survived Normandy. talked to a few others in the church who have loved ones with autism you can read the autobiography of temple grandin and understand bits about autism but you haven't lived autism you see all these things are, are true right these the real experiences but but there's so much more than a picture there's so much more than a video And I think sometimes we approach the gospel the same way. Yeah, what we have is true. These set of facts is good and right, and it can transform our hearts, and it brings joy to us. But we don't realize the gospel is multidimensional, full-orbed, and beautiful. So just look with me. I want you to show you this from Colossians itself, that it's more than just a a couple truths. A Roman's road. He says, In chapter five, or there's not chapter one and five in Colossians. Chapter one, verse five. He talks about that you have heard these truths, this hope that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. So he says the word of truth, and then he says the gospel. So there's some correlation between those two things. To talk about the word of truth is to talk about the gospel. And he talks about this very gospel is a set of truths that has power. Because it's it, this set of truths, this news, this gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. So, word of truth, gospel. Now look ahead at 123. Sorry, I want to go to 125. Chapter 1, verse 25. He says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God. I might say the Bible. The word of God in all its fullness. And then he goes on. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. So I'm declaring to you, I'm presenting to you the whole word of God, which is a mystery. And he's made known to you the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. We proclaim him. So he starts by saying I proclaim the whole word of God in all its fullness and then he ends by saying actually what I'm doing is proclaiming Christ. So, to proclaim the word of truth is to proclaim the gospel is to proclaim the whole counsel of the word of God is to proclaim this mystery this this truth from the Old Testament that gets unveiled in Christ is to proclaim Christ himself. Do you see That when when Paul's talking about digging down into Christ and saying that's what you need, he's not talking about simply this kind of flat, one-dimensional few sets of truths, a little sliver of the pie. He's talking about all of the scriptures, the full counsel of the word of God as it relates to Christ Jesus. That is the full-orbed, multi-dimensional gospel. I'm not trying to say anything against what I've called this flat gospel. It is the gospel we all initially understand and embrace that transforms us. Those truths are delightful to me. What I'm saying is if that's all you understand of the gospel, then you're going to be dissatisfied. And you're going to reach this plateau. And you're going to say either... Because I haven't seen this gospel in all its beauty. I reject it. I walk away from it. Or, as might be the case with the Colossians, you're going to be at risk of thinking that the gospel is step one in your Christian journey. I believe the gospel, so I'm a Christian. Now what? What's next? And that'll make you susceptible to so-called Christian teaching... That will come in under the cloak of Christianity. Appealing to your intuition. To what makes sense to you. To the values of this world. To your own desire for spiritual heights. And it's going to drag you off after something in the name of Jesus. But that ultimately is a man-made thing. And you're no better off than the one who rejected it outright. Both situations are bad. And what we both what both need are to dig down into the beauty of the full-orbed gospel of Jesus Christ. If all the only bottle you've already ever drank from is the bottle of Jesus died, so I don't have to go to hell, and that's the gospel, and you might be going. Okay, James, I see what you're saying from Colossians, but it's hard to get my mind around well, what more is there to the gospel. Are you going to pull out some trick and say, add something to the gospel yourself? Let me just give you one brief sample. So you see in chapter 1, Paul's talking about the gospel in verses uh, 12 and 13 and 14. He says, I'm giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from The dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, the story of the Bible is a story of this kingdom that God makes, and it's good. In this kingdom called the Garden of Eden, there's no strife, there's no jealousy, there's no disease and sickness. Nature and man get along with one another, aren't at odds with one another. There's no shame. There's not even a real self-awareness. But then, man chooses to rebel against God. To defy the one command that God had given them. And this new reign of Darkness, dominion of darkness, Colossians 1.14 says, sets in upon us. Here there is war and hatred and strife within a family and cancer. Or it would say disease, I don't think they called it cancer then. And heartache and injustice. And low self-esteem. All these things. Are a product of the reign. Of darkness. So the gospel is that Jesus when he came. Defeated the two things that held a stronghold. On the reign of darkness that kept it there. He defeated sin on the cross. And he defeated death when he rose up. And because he conquered. He brought in the reign of light. The kingdom of Of which there is an inheritance when he returns and takes this fallen world, this world of darkness, and throws it into eternal lake of fire. That is what I'm talking about when I say a full-orbed gospel. It's Jesus, his death and resurrection. It's Jesus, his death and resurrection. Same, same thing. And yet it's so much more than just I don't have to go to hell. He's actually done something about this fallen world. The kingdom of darkness is going to be done away with. And the kingdom of light is here. And for those who repent and trust in Jesus, we actually get transferred from the rebellious kingdom going against God into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That's what Colossians is talking about when it says dig deeper and you're going to find more and more gold. And as we go through Colossians, there'll be example, example after this of digging down deep and finding so much more. The theologian Douglas Moo wrote of Colossians, Any teaching that questions the sufficiency of Christ, overtly or inherently, not only for initial salvation but also for spiritual growth growth and ultimate salvation from judgment, falls under the massive Christological critique of Colossians. Sometimes people, if if you have heard Colossians taught before, or you did a Bible study in Colossians, you might have heard the, the phrase attached to Colossians, the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is number one. He's the best. The supremacy of Christ. But I think what Douglas Moo, the phrase he's chosen is better. The sufficiency of Christ. That's going to be our theme through Colossians. The sufficiency of Christ. First half, first chapter and a few verses. You've received the supreme Christ. Second half, chapters 2 through 4. Here's how you walk in him. When we sense this longing for more. We can't turn elsewhere. We must turn to the Christ of Scripture. We must seek to understand the many intricate strands that run through the Bible, which all unite around Christ. And these simple truths, these what I call flat truths, that we already know, we must seek to know in a deeper And more full way. We must impress this gospel upon our souls so that it affects every fiber of our being. In that sense, we truly need nothing more than the Christ of Scripture. the pastor J. Vernon McGee said, the dominating thought in Colossians is Christ is all. He is all I need. He is everything. The old writer of hymns, Charles Wesley, put it this way, Thou, O Christ, Art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Let's pray. I pray right now, God, for the people in this room who identified with Sarah Young. Who have embraced the gospel and felt certain highs that come from that but are right now feeling stalled out or plateaued and are either tempted to reject this gospel or to seek out different, diverse teachings. And I pray that through this study in Colossians, them and everyone else here, or they and everyone else here, would find the richness and the fullness of the whole gospel in all its beauty, the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would be rooted and grounded in Him, built up and strengthened in the teaching we've received. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.